Well, good morning. It has been a while since I have led worship and preached. Um, so hopefully that means we don't go slower through the sermon because we're still going to cover the same amount of content. So hopefully I have enough energy to, uh, to run us through this. It has really been a while. My fingers hurt. If you're a guitar player, you know what I'm saying. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Anybody? Anybody relate? Yeah, they hurt. Uh, so... Just get over it. <laughs> um, I'd like to take just a moment real quick. Um, Greg is not here this morning. Greg, at 1 o'clock last night, went to the emergency room with a really bad migraine. And uh, they don't know what's going on. He does feel better today. Um, they've told him he needs to stay home and chill. So um, that's why I'm on the saddle for leading worship this morning, uh, filling in for Greg. So this is not a permanent change. I will make sure of that. Uh, you would have to, like, give Greg a brain transplant or something. Uh, he will be leading worship for us. So uh, anyways, let's pray. I want to pray for Greg, and then we'll continue to wor uh, worship through hearing the word this morning. Father, we know you're the great physician. Well, we know you can heal. You do heal. Uh, Father, we don't know what's going on in Greg's uh, brain or his mind and what's going on up there, but Father, you do, and Father, you've ordained these very moments that we stand in today. You're in control of them. It's not a surprise to you, but it's happening exactly as you had planned for today from eternity past, and so we rest in your control, and Father, we find our hope in you, and Father, I pray that, uh, that you would strengthen Greg, that you would heal Greg if that is your will. And, uh, Father, um, that, uh, that you would help us as a body to care for him in ways that we need to. And so, Father, uh, I also pray this morning that uh, your word would go forward as only your word can do. And, Father, that I would just simply step aside and, and let your word speak truth to us this morning. And, Father, uh, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's rock and roll. I have a series of questions for us to think through here right off of the beginning, right off the bat. First question, what do you fear most? What do you fear most? Kind of a sub-question to that, what drives you? It's typically, whatever you fear most is going to be something you think about often, and it's going to guide many questions and thoughts, and uh, it's going to drive you. Underneath, again, that same category, what do you fear most? What if it, what if it were to think, I'm sorry, I totally worded that wrong. Who, if they were to think badly about you or were to, uh, uh, to think that they would not have pleasure in you or to think highly of you, who would, if that happened, would cause great tension in your heart? Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. So what do you fear most? And then I'm kind of giving you a who question underneath that category of, of what. That's kind of the first question. Second question, 
what do you trust most? What do you trust most? If it were taken away from you, your hope would disappear. What do you trust most? If, another sub-question to what do you trust most. If it were to disappear, your security would be gone. Your security would be gone. Maybe security in the future, security in the moment. What do you trust most? Third question. Third main question. What is it you find pleasure in the most? So if you couldn't have this, life would be boring or uneventful or maybe even depressing. What is it you find pleasure in the most? Sub-question of that is if you couldn't have this, your satisfaction and joy would seemingly be gone. So what do you fear most? What do you trust in most? What do you find most pleasure in? Everybody got answers to those? Think in your mind? All right. I want to encourage you as we work through this, if you're a guest this morning, um, it will be very helpful to have, if you have your Bible, to have Luke 12 open. We're just going to kind of walk right through that text, and we'll talk a little bit, walk through the text, talk a little bit, walk through the text. Uh, and again, our goal here is not for Matt to say little cool things and then for us to walk away with a couple verses talked about, but the goal is for the text to drive what we're talking about this morning. Um, so we want the text to be the content and intent of the text, to be the content and intent of the passage. That is my goal with you guys this morning. So, in Luke thus far, we have seen Christ has been very concerned about who He is. Like, the, the disciples believing in who He is. Not just in His actions, or not just affirming, all oh, those are cool, those are grand things, but, but believing He is the Son of God. He is God Himself, has come to bring the kingdom of God and to consume and complete everything that God has been planning since the beginning of time. And we just saw in the past couple chapters where the disciples finally figured out this is Jesus, this is God. And so now what's happened, instead of Jesus you know, demonstrating that He is the Messiah, now He's beginning to verbally proclaim He is the Messiah, as now we've kind of both physically and spiritually, Jesus has turned his head towards the cross. So now, instead of just walking around with the disciples, doing cool things, showing affirmation of what he is and demonstration of who he is, now he's turned this direction, he's headed towards the cross, and now he's beginning to talk about, as on his way to the cross, what it means to be a follower of his. What it means to be one who is carrying a cross as well. And so this is where we're headed today. I think there's three questions that really hit uh, this passage as a big overview of chapter 12. And those questions are this. One, who do you fear most, God or people? Who do you fear most, God or people? The second question is, what do you trust most, God or money? God or money? And third, whom do you most want to please, God or or yourself? God or yourself? So who do you fear most? Who do you trust most? And whom do you want to please most? So the first one, who do you fear most? God or people? What we're talking about here is the fear of man. 
and the fear of man, I'm convinced, leads us towards a couple big issues. And that is, one is hypocrisy, and the second is anxiety. Fear of man leads to hypocrisy and leads to anxiety, among a slew of other issues and problems. But I think, particularly in the text, we see hypocrisy and anxiety. So fear of man, we should define fear of man as we proceed, or before we proceed. And that is regarding the opinions of others more highly than anything else. Fear of man regarding their opinion more highly than anything else. One common reason why we sin is because we crave the approval of people or we fear their rejection. We crave their approval or we fear their rejection. But uh, we need to think about this, though, in, in a more deeper sense than just simply, I want people to like the way I dress, right? Like, I know I might be reaching back into high school for some of us, uh, or currently, um, but like, it's just more than just, oh, I hope they accept me, they think I look good, or my haircut is acceptable, uh, which, you know, anyways, uh, like, I hope that that, like, it's just much, much more than that. When you, like, let me give you some examples. When you're serving and you lose joy because someone has not thanked you for serving, that could be fear of man. You desire their approval. You crave their acceptance. In a friendship that is just beginning, you stretch things or twist things just slightly so that the other person doesn't quite see the flaws. That's fear of man. Or in a church community, you do not share sins or struggles in your life because of what others might think. Again, fear of man. Last one, when someone holds you accountable for sin and you get defensive, it's often because of your fear of what they might think. Again, fear of man. So since we need their acceptance, what happens is we become their slave, essentially. Like very functionally, we become a slave to others when we fear them. Now, here's the deal. We tend to think of this as an outward problem. Like, well, we want them to think a certain way about us, and it's all their fault that they don't see it, right? Like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, we, we think, okay, well, the problem's not with me. The problem's with them. They're just too blind to see that I look cool in the way I dress or that I'm serving and I should get thanked. Like, we, think, we look at the problem and go, it's out there. Now, should they thank and be gratuitous towards our serving? Thing? Yeah, absolutely. But when that leads you to be controlled by them, you've now entered into a sinful state uh, where you now more greatly desire what they would say than anything else. So then we do not have what we do in order to secure a certain response to them. So what happens is we begin to change our, our behavior, we begin to change our, our speech and our patterns so that we can secure a certain response from those around us. And then this leads us to hypocrisy and anxiety. Hypocrisy because you end up in deception about who you are in reality. The danger is that as you begin to live out this hypocrisy, you begin to convince yourself often that you're someone else than what you really are. And anxiety because you are consistently or constantly worried about the future and what people will find out. Fear of man. Let's begin Luke chapter 12, 1 through 12. It says, in the meantime, 
In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his first disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the house tops. These are profound words from our Savior. Verse 4. As I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiving, forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So, as we work through this text, Jesus' popularity here uh, is going to quickly diminish. As Jesus begins to kind of crank up the heat, it's going to quickly diminish. There will be those who accept Him and those who adamantly oppose him. You'll begin to see the kind of the wedge being driven hard as we continue through this text. Jesus has already taught that acknowledging God, regardless of what others say, is the deciding factor in whether or not God will accept or reject you. So Jesus has already said that, that, that your acknowledgement of him before man is a primary concern and deciding factor in whether or not God would accept or reject you. And then Jesus says it here again. Now, if we're talking about the fear passage here, typically when we think of this passage, it's presented as, this is how I've heard it preached often, is be bold in your proclamation of Jesus because the only thing that they can do is kill you. And it's used as a kind of a, a missional motivator where we need to proclaim the gospel and don't worry about it. They could kill you, become a martyr, you know, all those things like uh, you know, special time out of purgatory if they do. I'm just kidding. Uh, like, like it's, it, it, yes, that's an application of, it's just not the whole point of the text. That is a proper application. Yes, when we proclaim the gospel, we should not fear man because this is the worst that they can do. But it's much more than that. There's more to the passage than just simply our gospel proclamation and how we, how we do that. Uh, we miss, I think, the bigger picture. So here, if we crave approval, then we'll be tempted towards hypocrisy and anxiety. I think that the fear of man and all of its applications is more that we can draw from this text. When you fear man more than anything else, you become a slave to them. I want to read to you, uh, if any of you have read the book, When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. It's a great book on the fear of man. He says this, Fear of man has many symptoms. Susceptibility to peer pressure, needing something from a spouse, a concern with self-esteem, being overcommitted because we can't say no, 
fear of being exposed, small lies to make ourselves look good, people making us jealous, angry, depressed, or anxious, avoiding people, comparing ourselves to others, and fear of evangelism. Now, our culture tries to overcome this problem by finding ways typically to boost self-esteem. So fear of man, and what we do is we try to boost self-esteem, but that only builds the problem. We become dependent on whatever or whoever will boost our self-esteem. In reality, and, and here, like, all, anybody with low self-esteem, okay? I, I'm, I'm going to be mean for just a moment, okay? Low self-esteem is simply thwarted pride. It's thwarted pride. We don't have the status we think we deserve. right? So you're not getting the approval that you think those other people should be giving you. It's thwarted pride. It's pride that's not going like you would want it to go. What happens is you've elevated, elevated desires that are often good in themselves. Like, for instance, a desire for love, a desire for affirmation, or a desire for respect. Like, those are good desires. Like, we should all desire love and affirmation and respect. But what's happened is those become, they're risen to a level of need that without them you cannot be whole. So you view yourself as incomplete because you do not have this love and respect from other people. We think we need the approval and acceptance of others. But our true need, the Bible teaches, is to glorify God and love people. That's what we need. If you have a low self-esteem, that's what you need. And I don't want to make this all about just having a low self-esteem. This isn't a pop psych you know, conversation. But... But this clearly is an application to this. And, and I would encourage parents, as you have kids growing up, like, oh, he's just, he's just struggling with self-esteem. Like, build him to esteem God, not himself or herself. Build them to esteem God. Because the answer to the fear of man, so both this is kind of the sub-application of self-esteem, but then any of the other applications of the fear of man, the, the answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then going back to Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. I mean, think about it. So Jesus says, don't fear man. But instead, what? What is his answer to that? But I will warn you to whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, when he says that they can do no more, like they can't do any more, what's he... What more can you do after you die? Right? I mean, the Bible tells death is not the end of it. There's more to us than just our bodies. We are made in the image of God, having a spirit that is eternal. Having a soul that is eternal. But God has the power after physical death to do what He wills with that which is eternal. 
And man can only kill the physical, cannot kill the eternal, but God can do as he will with the eternal. And God, if he is good, will throw those who reject him into hell, experiencing his wrath forever. If God is good, he'll do that. If he's not a good God and not a just God, then he will let those whom owe a payment go without paying. Verse 4 and 5 says that this is the one who can cast souls into hell. Now, if the word uh, Gehenna, I think is the, the word here, like literally it was talking about like a trash dump outside of the city where trash was burning, like the coals and the fire taking place, where, where people, like really bad people, were even cast into that fire. So, like you think of like an incinerator. Has anybody seen the movie Toy Story 2? You know, when they're all going to like, is it three, when they're all going to the, the burning thing, you know, and they're like, dun, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, if you're a kid, now imagine watching that as, as a kid, right? You're like freaked out, like, oh, you know, right? Like, but, but literally, okay, <laughs> all right? But these aren't stuffed animals, these are people. And, 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 and Jesus is telling us that God is the only one that can do such a thing. But what's interesting, I think we have to understand this within the context, because often, again, and they hear this taught, it's like this big old like scare fest. And, but what's interesting is, listen to what Jesus says back in uh, chapter 12, uh, uh, sorry, Back in chapter 12, verse 6, he says, And are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God? Why even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not, you're more valuable than the sparrows. So what's interesting is Jesus is not casting this great motivating fear on them. He's telling them the reality, and then the one that they fear is also the one that loves them. And knows everything. Knows even the hairs on their heads. And I like to say, he knows when you lose one because he plucked it out, right? Like, he knows because it's a part of his plan. Like, God cares. And so, it's not, Jesus is not just going, you know, oh, it's hell and it will be cast there. But it's, it's a, it's a, there's a balance because he's saying this reality of hell and saying this love of God. And don't fear man. Fear God. And by the way, He loves you. And He knows. Like not a sparrow falls out of the sky apart from His plan. And are you not you more valuable than these sparrows? So God has a special providential care for His own. I think that's displayed here in the text. He has a special providential care for His own. Because he's talking about these sparrows, and he's saying, but are not, these, are not you more important than these sparrows? You who would fear God and not man, are not you more important than these sparrows? And then in verse 8 and 9, Jesus calls his followers to confess him before others. Um, so this is kind of the context here. Don't fear God, fear man. By the way, God loves you, and confess me before man. So, to overcome fear of man, what, what would Jesus have us 
do. I think, he th- I think he would have us have a big view of God. I think most of us, our view of God is way too small. It is way too minimalistic and simplistic. Just, it's too small. To fear God is to respect, worship, trust, and submit to Him. I think we all can be challenged to to do all of those things, to respect Him more, to worship Him more, to trust Him more, submit to Him more. This is the proper response. This trusting and submitting and worship is the proper response to His glory, His holiness, His power, His love, His goodness, and His wrath. This is our proper response. It's not a flippant, hello God, nice to see you today, Jesus is my homeboy kind of t-shirt day. Like that's not the kind of relationship we have with God. He deserves our respect and our worship and for us to lay at His feet. You know, the appearances of God in Scripture are often described as brightness and fire and brilliance. This is our God. Again, we need a big view of God for the Christian Though the fear of God no longer involves terror because now He is our Father through Jesus Christ. So fear for us, for those who are followers of Christ, no longer has to involve terror. If you're not a follower of Christ, then yeah, there is some terror there. I encourage you this week, go read Hebrews 4 concerning no terror. Verse 14 through 16. I would encourage you, if you fear man, to meditate on these things. God's glory, His greatness, His holiness, His power, His splendor, His beauty, His grace, His mercy, His love. Meditate on these things, to which there is no end of these things for Him. He's infinitely holy and infinitely powerful. He's powerful to the extent to which you cannot fathom. So why fear This dude sitting right here, his power is very limited. His splendor (laughs) is very limited. God's is not. Now, fear in the face of threat, right, is, is natural. But natural fear needs to be regulated by faith in God. So as we live a life, there is things that will bring us fear. But that is regulated, should be regulated, should be guided should be, should be directed by faith in God. And what would, how would God have us view this moment, whatever the situation is? Like, for instance, your boss might be a bully, but he or she isn't bigger than God. So why fear them? I mean, she doesn't need to respect, and there's all those things, but, but why fear them? See, see, the fear of God is liberating. It's not enslavement. It's actually liberating. Now, now, now here's the deal. Because I, I, I don't want us to take this too far. Because clearly the Bible also teaches that we should take people's expectations seriously because we want them, because we want to love them and because God has commanded. So we take people's expectations and what they're hoping us to do. And those, we take those things seriously, but the difference is we're not enslaved to them. We don't serve people for what they can give us in return. Approval, affection, security, or whatever. We don't serve people so that we can get things back. By submitting to Christ's lordship, we are free to serve others in love. Do you see that? So instead of me serving now, instead of me doing this because I fear you, 
And so that now that fear is guiding and directing what I say to you, how I act. So now I'm beginning to act and say things that are not me or not genuine. But when I love God and I fear Him, I'm able to now serve you rightly. I'm able to now serve you with genuine love, with genuine concern and affection. Because now it's not about what I can get from you, but about what God has done for me. And serving out of that. So the real danger, I think, is this hypocrisy. You might even to start believe, believing your publicity. So who you think you have to be in order for them to approve you. Now you begin to believe that that's actually who you are. Now what happens to the sanctification process when you begin to believe that you're someone that you're not? Well, it's halted. I mean, it's all part of, still part of his plan, but like now you're living a lie, essentially. And my question would be, for many of us, how many of us live, at least in different parts of our lives, our lies? Because we live in such a way that's not genuinely who we are. Because it's about proving to them that you're someone that you're not. Now think about that, and just, just to draw out a, a quick implication or application of that, like think about that in the body. If people think that you're someone that you're really not, then how are they going to be able to help you work through sin in your life? They think you got it all together. It's not possible. Unless someone realizes your hypocrisy. And then is able to point that out. And by God's grace, I pray that he does that to some of us. That he would point those things out. You might even become confused again about who you really are. When you start creating, here's another danger. When you start creating these standards that you must meet in order to gain the approval of others, you're essentially creating your own laws. You're becoming a law lover. Like, this is who I have to be in order to gain acceptance. And then what ends up happening, when you begin to live underneath your own law, then you begin to expect other people to live underneath that same law. When it's all based upon the fact that you're not being who you are because you fear other people more than you fear God. Fearing God is the answer to fearing man. So the danger, though, and I want to move forward in this text, we get into this next verse in chapter 10, of chapter, chapter 12, verse 10. Jesus goes on, he says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, if you're like me, you're like, what in the world is he talking about, right? So, I think this is a tough verse to understand, uh, particularly at first reading. Um, this would be what we would call the only unforgivable sin. Wow, and, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to be able to treat this with a long example, or, uh, explanation. We're just going to kind of run right through it. But he talks about something here, though, that cannot be forgiven. Something that cannot be forgiven. What's interesting, though, is that he distinguishes this from speaking against the Son of Man. I mean, right here in this immediate context, he says that this is different. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is different than blaspheming or speaking against the Son of Man. So we're just to think about this. Think about the forgiveness that came to Peter and Paul. They both rejected Christ. I mean, Peter, 
I mean, we just saw this. Peter's following Jesus, but not really affirming who Jesus is. And then we see Jesus, or see Peter rather, at the cross later on in Luke when, when he'll reject Jesus three times or deny Jesus three times. But Peter, we're certain of his salvific work of God in his life. And then Paul, think about Paul. You think he like was against Jesus? Yeah. He killed people. But then later we see God's salvific work in Paul's life. We see a change. So, so Jesus is drawing a distinction here. So just to kind of cut right to the chase, I think if I'm understanding the text rightly, I think Jesus is talking here about self-righteous, persistent rejection of salvation in Jesus Christ. Persistent, self-righteous rejection of Jesus Christ. And you say, how, why? Here's a very quick explanation. <clears throat> Jesus so far has clearly demonstrated that God, that He and God are one. And from the rest of the Scriptures, we know that the Holy Spirit is the same as well. I mean, they're three in one. We also have seen clearly that people who didn't believe in Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, we, we have also seen clearly that there, that there are those who didn't believe in Jesus and then later came to faith in Jesus. And then the third thing that we've seen is the ones who continued to not believe thought that they were justified via self-righteousness. We see this in, particularly in the Pharisees. So we've seen these three things already. So those, like we see Jesus' affirmation that He is God and so is the Holy Spirit. We have also see clearly that there are people who didn't believe in Jesus but later, and those who continued to reject Him was out of self-righteousness. So, I think this has to be an ultimate rejection of God, a persistent rejection of God, because that would be for all of eternity, and a rejection because of self-righteousness. Now, I think I'd have to say, theologically, that any, like, any rejection of God is ultimately because of self-righteousness. It's because I have something that's better than God. I have something that's better than God. I have my own righteousness, so... I know that may not have been a fair treatment to that verse, but we must move forward. Let me, ask, let me say this. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, one who has confessed faith in Jesus Christ and, may, and received Him as Lord of your life, let me ask you this question. Do you find yourself tired of lying and trying to impress other people? Do you find yourself tired? The reason you are tired is because you were not made to do that. You weren't made to do that. You were not made to fear man. You were made to fear God and for the fear of God to be the fuel of your life. You were made to fear God. But how, like, that's the question, how do we live this life that we were meant to live? We have to understand, I would say, we have to understand and believe that first we were made in God's image. He chose our own way, though. Like, we chose and we continue to choose our own way. But God in His love sent His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for us. And we must trust and turn from our sinful ways and place our trust in Him turn our lives to Him. This all reverence, respect, fear that comes from believing this 
as how we were meant to live. In a fear and a reverence of God from believing that He sent His Son to die for us. Living in this brings freedom. This is how we were meant to live. If you are a Christian, fear God. If you're a Christian, fear God. There is no way for you to be honest with yourself or honest with others if you fear man more than you fear God. If you operate relationally off the fear of man, then you are not genuinely living in relationship. Now, I would encourage you to think through this because if you've been living this life of fearing man, then at least in the community of faith, all of your relationships could be fake. That they could be based upon your hypocrisy. Not the genuine, like, who Matt is. Now, the risk of that is people may not like you, right? Right? Like, they may not accept you for who you are. Now, shame on them, right? I mean, there's the other side of that, how they should be loving and gracious and kind. And that doesn't mean that you just need to, you know, no holds bar, well, I'm just going to be the rude, you know, arrogant self that I am. Like, that's not what we're talking about. It's not just, you know, ride them cowboy and get out there and just let them know who you are. It's not that, right? I mean, that... I just don't want anybody to take the wrong impression. But who I am is a sinner, and I struggle with these things, and I need your help, even though you may look down on me because I struggle with these things. Fear of man. Fear of God. This leads to honesty now, so not hypocrisy, and it leads to confidence in the future. And we didn't even get into the whole, when you fear God, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you stand before God as fully accepted, fully clothed in righteousness. So let me think about that. So if, I'm not, if, not, if I've turned from fearing man and from having his acceptance and his approval, and I turn to fearing God, when I do that, I'm fully accepted, never having to worry about, am I doing enough to get into his presence or earn his favor? Because it's not about me, but it's about what Jesus did. The freedom, right? So don't fear man, fear God. So who do you fear most, God or other people? I really encourage you to work out the implications of that for your life. Search your heart deeply this week. Ask God, where am I fearing man? I think you'll be surprised. Like you may be like, oh, I don't care what other people think. And yeah, all right? Like I'm one of those people. And I really care what other people think when I begin to actually evaluate my life, my thoughts, my actions. Right? You care more about what other people think. And you fear man more than you realize. Secondly, what do you trust most? God or money? What do you trust most? God or money. <clears throat> we find that earthly wealth only temporarily hold, hides our poverty before God. Earthly wealth only temporarily hides our poverty before God. Let's work through this text. Chapter 12, 13-20. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, 
man, who, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul. You like that? I will say to my soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Again, so much to work through here. But here's the famous parable of the rich fool. Now, before we kind of get disconnected from the text, we fit this category of wealth, okay? We fit this category. This is not, right, well, this is the person that lives in that neighborhood over down the road, okay? We fit very easily this category, even if you have a minimum wage job, right? Jesus tells this parable to get, though, to the issues that he knew were behind the request to help his family problem. So the dude comes, what's going on? You know, here, Jesus, we need your help with this. But Jesus tells this parable because the questions that were being asked was not actually the answer that needed to be given to solve the problem. But Jesus gives the parable that gets to the heart of what's going on in this situation. So notice two problems here. One, the man, the rich fool, speaks about the future as if he has control of it and as if money brings about its certainty. So he speaks about it as if it has control. He says this, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Problem one. Problem two, his focus was entirely on himself. I heard a preacher say, maybe he didn't have enough, maybe his barns were too small because his generosity was too small. But his focus was entirely on himself. He wanted to be taken care of well and live a life at ease. Now, I mean, here's the question, though. Isn't that the goal? I mean, isn't that our goal? Financial planning and like living a life at ease. Isn't that the goal for right now? Like, isn't that the goal for retirement? And, and right now is for us to like mold our finances around so that we can relax, eat, drink, be merry? Well, and my follow-up question to that would be, what does this say about the rich man's life and possibly ours? If that is our goal. If that is what is most important to us. Does he care more, the rich man and us, do we care more about our body than our soul? I think that's what that says. I care more about my body than I do my soul. And if we know anything about the Bible, that's a bad long-term investment. To care more about the body than you do the soul. And that's what's going on in the rich man's life. He cares more about his body than he does his soul. So my question would be, what is your relationship with your possessions? What is your relationship with your possessions? What kind of pull 
does your possessions have on your life? What kind of guidance does it give to you? Your paycheck, what kind of pull does that have on your life? Next question, what brings you comfort and security? What brings you comfort and security? Here's a question. Do you lose hope for the future at the thought of not having a job or a paycheck? When you look ahead to the future and you go, oh no, like, I just don't know what I would do if I didn't have a job, paycheck. Life would be like over. It would just all fall apart. What happens is when money becomes your source of trust and comfort, then ultimately you become poor towards God. Like you become impoverished towards God. You begin to think that you have all this money and all this security. But because you're placing your trust in your money, then your trust and hope before God becomes impoverished. I can't. Why? He's for me, against me, right? Placing my hope and trust in money versus placing it in God. Like, I think this, like, we're not even going to talk about, like, tithing and how you should give X amount of dollars in church. That, because, look, like, if we go talk about that, we need to talk about this. This is much more foundational to that. Is how is your relationship with God versus your relationship with your money? Do you place your hope in it or do you place it in God? So storing up for yourself is essentially, I think Jesus is saying here, is, is antithetical to being rich towards God. So storing up for yourself, thinking about yourself, is antithetical to being rich toward God. And then what he says is death reveals the uselessness of such stored up wealth for yourself. Who are you going to leave it to? Who, or whose is it now? The death reveals the poverty you have before God. So what can we learn from this? We've got to move forward. Be generous. Be generous. We, yes, like, again, I want to give a couple caveats, but yes, we need to plan for the future. Yes, there is a day when you may not be able to work. Yes, there is responsibility in having a savings account and, and having money for, like, an emergencies and things like that. Yes, there is stewarding your resources to pay off debt. Now, we're not, we're not saying we just go out and just be frivolous with our money. That's not what, I mean, there's other scriptures that would guide us away from that. <clears throat> but the issue, I think, ultimately comes down to is where, is your, where are you placing your hope at? Is it in your savings account, your paycheck, your job? Hopefully, with the economy the way it is, you would certainly not be doing that with your job. Like, where are you placing that at? Place it in God. His wealth never runs out. What did he just say before this? Not a sparrow falls from the sky that God does not know about, does not care about. Like your paycheck is a piece of paper, right? That equals a bunch of other little pieces of paper. But God owns it all. Be generous. And generous towards God. It seems here from that generosity brings joy to God. Those who have experienced the generosity of God will be generous towards others. 
I think we make the argument that many of us are not generous towards other people because we don't realize the lavish generosity of the Father towards us. We hoard because we think God hoards. God does not hoard His love, right? He poured out His Son's life for us. And that's just the piece of the puzzle. All right. Trusting God for your future, not your ability to control it. Trusting God, making His pleasure our treasure in heaven, leads us to share our temporary treasures on earth because we don't put most of our love on them, but rather on God. Let me read that to you again. Trusting God makes His pleasure our treasure in heaven, leads us to share our temporary treasures on earth because we don't put most of our love and hope in them but rather in that which is eternal and is in heaven. Right? So, Jesus continues this vein of thought in trusting God. Let's go to chapter 12, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What will you eat, nor about your body, or what you will put on? Listen, listen. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow you are to drink, nor be worried. I'm sorry, tomorrow is, there we go, my, my bad, 28. But if God so clothes the grass which is, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I love what Jesus says here, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom <laughs> sell your possessions and give to the needy provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with the treasure in the heavens that do not that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is there will your heart be also so little flock little flock verse 33 the kingdom of god that he refers to here is the rule and reign of God and, and his abundance. This flock is already in right relationship with God. I mean, we're not talking about believers, unbelievers. We're talking, we, we are talking about believers here. And if we are a part of this flock, then we do not have to worry about what we need. So another way of saying this is if we are a part of the flock, then we get to trust in God as our provider. And it doesn't mean that you can just go home, quit your job, and like go, well, I'm just going to sit home and wait for manna to fall out of heaven, okay? Uh, I mean, that might happen. There's lots of manna that falls out of heaven around here, but like, 
that kind of goes against exercising dominion and taking care of your family, you know, all those things. The Bible talks about that too. But again, where are you placing your hope in and your trust in? And what are you storing up? You're not storing it up. All right. So we got that, I hope. So this is where having a good understanding of the doctrine of the providence of God really comes in handy. So we want to trust God. If you're struggling with trusting God for the future, I think it could be one of the couple following things, okay? I just want to kind of help you out here and, and, and yeah, we'll just go with that. One, maybe your heart doesn't, like, maybe, you, maybe your heart wants to trust the truth of God, but you just don't understand the extent of His providence, so maybe it's maybe your heart like loves God and loves that He's in control and that He had maybe but maybe you don't understand how extensive His providence is like so, so to fix that we need to know the Word of God maybe the other side is maybe you maybe the other problem is you know how extensive God's providence is but you still continue to choose to trust in your providence versus God's providence so let's talk about this though maybe maybe you don't understand. Like the extensiveness of God's providence. Like, so we read earlier from the Westminster Confession of Faith the section on providence, and I want to read it to you again, but I'm going to read it to you slowly. I want you to think about what they're saying. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. To the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, like to think through, I mean, there is so much packed in those few sentences. Dr. Ware, uh, this is this, uh, my theology professor I studied underneath him said this uh, about this, about that phrase I just read. He said, basically, God possesses exhaustive and meticulous sovereignty over the universe that he has made. And this is stated without qualification or compromise. So he has meticulous and exhaustive sovereignty over over the universe. It is His. Like, that's a God that you can trust your future in. That's a God that you can find your hope in. Not worrying about what we must have or what we need frees us up to be generous. Now, follow with me here. Christians must live, I think, provocatively. Like the rest of our world expects people to find their hope and their future in their health and their what? Wealth. Their stuff. Their health and their wealth. We need to live in such a way that shows that our trust is not in our health and our wealth, but in God. Now this is going to look different for all of us, but I think that is a... A, something that we need to figure out. What does that look like in our context? In our neighborhood, in our house, with our people that we work with. What does that look like? 
I'm surely God will care for you. You are worth more than the birds and the flowers. Now, I think Jesus is speaking here more to worried people. People worrying about what's coming next. And he would say to you, don't worry. Your worry shows you don't trust God. Trust God. Let's try to make it his pleasure, his pleasure, our treasure in heaven, and share our treasures here on earth. Third question. Whom do you most want to please, God or yourself? Whom do you want to please? So who do you trust? Who do you fear? Who do you most want to please, God or yourself? Let me ask you this question. Does it please you to avoid God's ways? Does it please you to avoid God's ways? I think we'll say, none of us would say, well, yeah, absolutely. I enjoy avoiding everything God tells me to do, right? Uh, I mean, I don't think most of us wouldn't say that. But if you do, it's probably, you're probably a little more honest than the rest of us. But the question is, when your greatest desire is to please yourself, then functionally you're saying this. It pleases me to avoid God's ways. When functionally you live as though your desire is the greatest, and that's, that's what you need, then, uh, then that. Let's read 12, verse 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table. And he will come and serve them. And he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house has known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come one day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. A few significant things here. The story of the manager applies to all Christians. All Christians. We've all been entrusted with the gospel. Those who are following Jesus, you've been entrusted with the gospel. I do think it has a special application to elders and church leaders, but, but it has application certainly to all of us. In verse 47 and 48, with increased knowledge, there comes an increased responsibility. Too much is given, much is required. I wonder, I wonder, if you really think you will have to give an account for how you have used the knowledge that you have been given. Like, 
Do we consider that? I mean, we, we live in a, in a nation and in a culture where knowledge is so available. Um, and I wonder if we consider the fact that we will be held accountable for how we've used that knowledge. Knowledge of God, how have, how have you lived that out? How have you applied that in your life? We will give an account. Uh, who much is given, much is required, and we will answer for these things. I think we need to cultivate a watchful life, studying His Word and obeying His Word. Verse 35 and 36, it's hard to persevere when it comes, when it seems like that which you are waiting on isn't ever going to come. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. The idea is the, the manager's been given tasks to do, knowing that the manager could, or knowing that the uh, that the owner could come at any time. But then when he begins to think, ah, he's not coming, then he begins to do what he wants to do. So his perseverance begins to wane. So the idea here is that those of us who are Christians, we have been given tasks, that God has given us a mission to do. Living godly lives and, and godly marriages and proclaiming the gospel with our marriages, with our mouths, with our lives. And, and, and the idea here is like, persevering through to the end because you don't know when he's returning. That's the, that's the idea. So, do you live like Jesus could return at any moment? Right? Do you live like Jesus could return at any moment? Now, I'm not talking about making the most of every moment. Like, yes, that, but more. Like, we're talking about living faithfully for him. You live, you persevere living like he could come any moment. So does it please you to avoid what God has called you to do so that you might enjoy what you want? Or does it please you to do what he has called you to do? Does that, does that bring pleasure? Like pleasure in God versus pleasure in yourself. So let's continue this passage. Verse 49. It says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her, against mother-in-law. I think you see here, beginning Jesus... Jesus' desire for holiness and justice displayed in this passage. Like, the cross is coming, and how great a distress until it's accomplished. And God's judgment falls on Satan and sinners here in verse 49, when he says, I came to cast fire on earth. Note the baptism in verse 50. He was speaking of the suffering that he was about to endure. Obviously, he was talking about the cross here. Uh, and not just the physical agony, but more f- fundamentally or more primarily the wrath, the agony of bearing the wrath of God. And if we're in the context, remember we're in the context of following Jesus towards the cross. If we're in that context of what it means to follow Jesus, then this baptism is not just for Him, but for all of us. Right? Not, the, not the bearing the weight of God's wrath, but, but this this life of suffering for Christ, following Him. 
So I have the question, what happened to the nice, peaceful, healing Jesus? <laughs> what happened? Like, you read this passage, and you're like, whoa, like, different Jesus alert, right? Right here, different dude. He's healing people, and now he's talking about people hating people. And Jesus teaches, though, that he has come to bring about division. Wow, what do we do with that? He says even families will be divided. Even families will be separated. Now, Jesus did come to bring peace, right? Like, that's what the peace on earth and goodwill to all men is what the song says. The song says peace on earth, the the Bible says peace on earth and goodwill to those whom God has favored is what the actual text says. The song's wrong. It's not peace on earth and goodwill to all men. It's peace on earth and goodwill to those whom follow God those who are in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, my, how our culture shifts and changes things in our thinking, right? Jesus, that's, that's Jesus says, I'll bring division. Peace that Jesus brings is between us and God. Peace between us and other believers. Jesus here is beginning, though, to separate the saved from the lost. He's beginning to to draw this divide between those who would follow him and obey him and those who would not. He's beginning to draw a very clear line of distinction. Allegiance to Christ will often mean opposition from those who oppose him. So if you're not a Christian, I, I want you to realize that Jesus was not fundamentally a unifier of all people. Like that's, that's what we think of Jesus. That's what our culture is painted, but that's not what he says right here. He came to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but not to redeem all people. Rob Bell, if you know who that is, got that one wrong. Okay? He came to redeem his people, those whom he's chosen, and he will unify them. But they will come from all tribes and all tongues and all nations. What divides this world greatly will no longer divide this world. But what will divide this world is the gospel. Because it will separate out those who follow God and those who don't follow God. And both groups will contain people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But the dividing line is not race and ethnicity and socioeconomic status. It's the gospel. Those who would submit to God and those who submit to themselves. So, if you're not a Christian, realize that the unity is among those who know God and know Jesus and follow Him. That's the unity. Now, there's a unity there that is indescribable. That's eternal. Now, if you are a Christian, expect these divisions to come. If you're living the gospel, it's going to bring division into your life. And I think what Jesus does, Jesus uses the division of family here for, em, for emphasis because it's in the family where there should be great unity. Like it's in the family where everybody should be, you know, we're of the same blood and, you know, right? Like, 
that's, that's kind of against what Jesus has already been saying, right? He, he didn't come to establish a dynasty or a, a physical, you know, Da Vinci Code type family. He, he came to, de, to start a spiritual family that would be united not by physical things, but by those things that are eternal, our souls united underneath the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that which you in your culture think to be the most unified component is that which will see division because of me. So he could say like, you know, in, you know like I think Jesus could have said, well, there would have been like nations against nations and, and everybody would go, oh yeah, got that. No, 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 look, your mama's going to hate you because of me. Right? And they go, whoa, that's serious. I think Jesus puts the family here, that which should be most unifying is divided. So Christians expect that. Now, now again, I, just, I have to caveat this because it doesn't mean you just become a jerk in all your family. Don't, don't let them hate you because of you. Let them hate you because of the gospel. Okay? There's a big difference between those two things. So, the pain of family, though, let me just talk about this for just a moment, because some of this is a real thing in our lives. The pain of family, as Jesus specifically says here, uh, is real for some of you, and it's painful. Um, maybe even beyond blood family, maybe you have friends and stuff that you would love to be friends with, but it just doesn't happen because the gospel divides you. And I just want to encourage you that that is why God has been so kind and providing us a new family, one that's united around Christ, one that is eternal. And we should cultivate relationships with one another. In the body, we should care for one another. That's why we set ourselves apart through going through church membership and church discipline and things like that. Like We want to know who our family is underneath the blood of Jesus. And we want to be, in this church, we want to be explicit about that. That's why covenant is so important to us. And I would encourage you, if you're not a member, uh, I would encourage you to, to pursue that. We will better know how to care for you. And the body will better know your care and concern for them um, through that. So, next, last, next slot here. Does it please you to avoid dealing honestly with God? Does it please you to avoid dealing honestly with God? Let's read verse 54. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, and you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus, what are you saying? Jesus is saying that God is the judge. That God is the judge. You must be reconciled to him before sentence is passed and carried out. 
So he's saying there is a day that's coming where we will all be judged. And he's saying you need to be prepared for that day now. I don't like those words. But those are the words the Bible says. What Jesus, Jesus' own words. Be prepared before this most certain and dangerous day is coming. Verse 59, Jesus is telling us that the accuser, guys, the accuser in the passage is God. Now, like, we, like we, we can, uh, no, no, Satan's the accuser. Yes. But Jesus, the accuser here, God, his point is that we must be reconciled before that day. He's the judge. Be reconciled to God now before it's too late. So who will accuse us? Jesus, for not acknowledging him and following him. Who will judge us? Jesus would, as God has appointed him in Acts 10. But then who would reconcile us with this judge? Who would reconcile us with this judge? Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, you look that up later. Praise God. Think about this. Our accuser had a wider, uh, a watertight case on us. Do you understand that? Like, our accuser, like, there's no chance of dismissal or an acquittal or whatever else that gets you off the hook. There's no, no chance. But he provides a way, right? He's become our redeemer and our amazing deliverer. Knowing this truth should cultivate gratitude and hope as we savor the truth of knowing that the case against us was a done deal. But then God sends His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us to pay that price. So in conclusion, here's what we've seen. Don't fear man. Fear God. Fearing God leads us to honesty. Honesty and lack of anxiousness leads us to rest. Like, and we should be resting in the gospel. Like, the, you know how we're supposed to have like a Sabbath each week? That is ultimately to be a reminder of the rest that we have in Jesus for all of eternity. Now, obviously, it does serve physical rest and needs as well. But it's to remind us that we get to rest in God. Honesty about who we really are, then we can grow into who we were really meant to be. Sanctification can really take place in the midst of honesty. Don't trust in money, trust in God. Money will let you down, your control will let you down. God will always provide. And if He has guaranteed your future, then He has guaranteed everything in between. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, Paul David Tripp, biblical counselor, posted this past a couple weeks ago, said something to the effect of if God has guaranteed your future, He has guaranteed then everything in between now and your future. Then lastly, don't seek your pleasure, seek God's. Don't avoid His ways, seek His ways. Be ready for that day by placing your trust in Him. So, I want to pray for us. Um, and uh, we've got one more song to sing in, in, in response to the text. And I want to encourage you to, again, we're, we're hitting a chapter a week, and there is so much here. I hope that God just overflows your heart, even in this moment. And helps you work through the implications and the applications of it for you, your life this week.
So I ask as I pray that you would begin praying that God begin to show you, even in these moments, these next few moments, where the text might bring shine light on into your life. So let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. And Father, I just pray that, um, that even in these moments that your word would be shining light into the darkness of our lives. Father, that we would, though not be driven to despair, but we would be driven to hope. Father, I pray that if we fear man, that we would grow to fear you more. I pray that if we trust in money more than we trust in you, Father, that you would show us that you are the only thing that is trustworthy. Um, And Father, if we are trying to find pleasure in that which we desire versus pleasure in you and desiring you, Father, that you would show us that your ways are much more desirable. And Father, we 